0: Maybe we can go home now. Sometimes the word, isn't it, is as clear as clear can be. We're in a series, like I just said, on the parables of Jesus. And in this parable, it continues on. David, last week, he said that some of Luke's remembrances of what Jesus said he always sometimes gives us some help, and he gives us some help in this. He said this because why? Some he noticed were trusting in themselves, trusting in their own righteousness before the Lord. I remember it's going back a long time now, let me think. Probably 86 or 87, I was in France. It's just before I met Tracy. That's where I met Tracy. She's my wife right here in France. And I worked there for about two years. I worked for a French company. And during the day, I would work in this drawing office. I'd be listening to French all day long. And practically every night for about two years, especially the weekdays, Monday through Friday, I would go to a place called L'Alliance Francaise. L'Alliance Francaise was a school for french as a second language that's what i was learning i was learning french so i went there every night i actually also met trace there one night and i'd met her at, at the anglican church church of england and i remember seeing her at the alliance en and at that time in my life i was full of myself full of pride and i can actually remember seeing her and i thought she must have followed me here how does she know that i'm actually here And I told her so. It's like, hmm. But I remember one night, we used used to, every three months, they would change the professors. And one night, a professor came along, and the French love the grammar of French, and they love to do what's known as dictée. That is, to dictate, you have to dictate something. You have to get all the accents right and everything. It's really, really hard. French school kids, they hate it. And so he forced us to do one. And I'll never forget it. Because he suddenly began to say, In the que deux the d'hommes there's only two kinds of men. The righteous who believe themselves to be sinners and sinners who believe themselves to be righteous. And there you have, through Blas Pascal, the, the inventor of the first computer and calculating machine for, for his dad. Blas Pascal, 17th century philosopher, scholar, highest intellectual, scientist, He had discovered the gospel. He had this wonderful conversion experience. And through his book called Pense, Thoughts, he began to try and show to his generation what it meant to be a believer in the gospel. And this is one of his most famous thoughts. And I can remember being sat there that night feeling like I was alone in a very dark place in Paris. Over 13 million people, but it often felt like you were the only believer there. And here was this professor out of the middle of nowhere suddenly gave me something within the French culture to go, wow, finally. And it was a eureka moment. I found it, and it was Blaise Pascal. I believe here we have In this passage, a summary, or Blaise Pascal himself has summarized what Jesus is saying. If you turn with me to the passage again, we're going to take a look at the two men, what the two men said, and what does that mean for us. I'm not obviously unaware it is just before election day. I work in prison. I have been talking about the election for the last 18 months. What's new, Mr. Jay? What's going on? Who's up? Who's down? What have they said? Because I'm the bearer of news, you see. I'm the contact person for all the news. So I've been talking about this ad nauseum. I'm ready for it to be over, yes? <laughs> What's been the problem in the election? You can talk all day long about policies, Democrats, Republicans, different policies, but they didn't get really talked about very much, did they? No. Because what's been more important about this election is how people have talked about one another. And may it not be that we should be people in this congregation that talk about other people in the appalling ways that have been done. Looking down the nose, that's what sets it up, doesn't it? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. There's your clue. It's as plain as a pike staff or a barge pole, as they say. Am I? No, never mind. (laughs) I'm English, by the way, just just so you know. here's what Jesus has observed, isn't it? Here's what he's observed. And isn't it interesting? If Jesus really wants to skewer someone, and I don't think he's really skewing, but he is, but he's not. He wants to win you, right? He's warning you. He's telling you, don't do this. I see it in you. I see your heart. I see the way you go up to pray. How did you come up to church this morning? There are two kinds of people who came up to church. One lot will remain the same and another lot will be different and here's the warning he says i see some of you the way you go up to prayers and in the context here jesus i'm not sure it's a parable jesus would have seen around jerusalem how people went up to pray he would have been there maybe in the temple observing jesus was a keen observer of human behavior and human thoughts he knew what you were thinking before you even said it yikes Did you know that as you came to church this morning? God already knows what's in your heart. He's a keen observer of it. In context here, there was daily in Jerusalem at that time, in the temple, the second temple built by Herod after the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 589 B.C. They built another temple. That's the temple that is being referred to here. And every day, twice a day, there would be an atonement there would be a lamb that was killed the blood would be shed and people went up to pray to worship to have their sins forgiven to avail themselves of the old testament way the old testament gift that god had given to be righteous. You see, righteousness is not just ethical or moral. In the Old Testament and in the New, righteousness means that you have accepted God's saving act on your behalf as your trust and as you're standing before him. And you're not trusting in yourself, whether your bad deeds or your good deeds. Am I preaching here this morning? Amen. And here's what he says. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself. Let me move. Oh, you riffraff. Let me move away. Can you imagine being in the temple? How far can I get away? See, if you touch me as a Pharisee, you will defile me. Let me move away. I wonder if Jesus has got a sense of humor here. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners unjust, adulterous. You know who you are. Or even like this tax collector over here I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I can imagine Jesus kind of having a sense of humor, can't you? As he probably gives maybe the holy tones. He's observed these guys for years. But did he pray? What's prayer about? He went up to the temple to pray, but he didn't pray. He gave a sermon, maybe to some other people. It was common practice in Jewish times to pray out loud so that other people could hear you you ever done that prayed out loud but it was really a sermon for everybody else to hear hmm? he prays out loud and then rather than confess prayer is about confessing your sin prayer is about asking God for help isn't it Prayer is about what? Interceding for other people, that they would have grace, that they would have mercy. But here he is on his errand, he goes up to the temple to pray, but he's there not only to boast about how righteous he is, at keeping the law, the ceremonial, everything, but he's there to attack other people, to make sure that they know their place, that they're not like him. Can you imagine? He's there and begins to boast of all of his righteousness. You think people tithe? I tithe of everything that I have. You know, there's Phariseeism and then there's super Phariseeism. I'm the the best of all of them. He seeks not only to make the poor poorer and sinners feel worse, In doing so, he tries to make himself feel better. Have you done that? We slip into it, don't we, very, very easily. It doesn't take much. As I was preparing this yesterday, I suddenly had a realization. Jesus is talking about me. On Friday... I only have one guy. I, I do groups all week long. I do counseling groups in prison. But I have one guy who's on my roster, and he had asked me would I see him one-on-one. So I began to, I took up his case and began to see him one-on-one. I had to see him on Friday. So I go on the wing. I'm sat there waiting for the uh, officers to, they call it pulling, pull my inmate, get him out of his cell, put him in his chains, and I'm sat there, and the phone goes. Another counselor answered the phone and the phone was for me but she answered it what do you want? he's right here but what do you want? I'll I'll take the message but I'm right there already I'm getting miffed she tells me you don't have to see that inmate take the chart back up to medical records he's leaving so he'll be gone by Monday So I thought that was a direct order for some higher-up who was on the other end of the phone. So I went to see my inmate, say, hey, you know, I won't be seeing you today, but, you know, Godspeed. We were able to talk very quickly together. You're not allowed to tell anybody when they're leaving. So it was a really awkward situation. I wanted to say goodbye. Part of counseling is being able to say goodbye to people, saying goodbye properly. When I get back down, she then proceeds to tell me, oh, you could have seen that inmate if you wanted to. I'm going, I just didn't want to cause you any more work. So now I'm really mad. So I'm still at the door, she's still talking to me, and I'm giving her this (laughs) implacable, right, you're not even, you know, the dirt underneath my fingernails kind of look. I take the chart back to medical records, and before I know where I am, I'm in my boss's office. I don't normally do this. What well, Can I make you for you know, a little while? And she goes, yeah, what's up? I said, I've just had this incident and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, I'm telling her all about the faults of my colleague. And by comparison, I'm saying, but I'm not like that. I really care for my inmates. Doesn't it come from us? It's like we don't even, it's just their pride, arrogance. You know, it's like Macbeth, you know, and she, she, she's... Macbeth is trying to get the blood out of her. You know, she's murdered somebody. She goes, out, damn spot. She couldn't get the, the stain of murder out. But it's like us, isn't it? We cannot get rid of the stain of pride and arrogance. And it comes with us, even into the Holy of Holies, even into our prayers, even into our work lives, into our families, our homes. Pride and arrogance is there to be seen in every single one of us. But none of us actually believes that it's in us. We always usually think it's in everybody else except us, don't we? Right? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah? How about this from C.S. Lewis? You can't go through a sermon if you're a PCA waller without C.S. Lewis. Just listen to this. This is his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He said, I said in an earlier chapter, there we go, the wrong place. There we go. Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well now, we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice The utmost evil, hear those words, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. See us loose. Mere Christianity, chapter 8, on the great sin. Pride, arrogance, conceit, leading to what? Jesus, Luke here tells us, leading us to have contempt with regards to other people. You're a Democrat. You're a Republican. Can't you see what she's like, Can't? Don't you, can't you, don't you get it? Oh my gosh, like, huh. Robert De Niro yesterday, just read the papers. Robert De Niro met with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Going to pump you up, Arnold. <laughs> Robert De Niro was quoted in the paper yesterday as having said, Arnold, if you're going to vote for him, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm out of here. Contempt, right there because you don't share the same political leanings as I do. You don't see the world in the way I do. You don't put the same political priorities in the way that I would put those priorities. But can you imagine Jesus getting all bent out of shape the way we do? Huh? What was the context? What was Israel at the time? A vassal of Rome, run from Rome, under the thumb of Rome, paying taxes to Rome, hence the tax collector. No wonder the Pharisee was where he was, See, because he represented the right way of doing things. That tax collector, he was taking money from the poor Israelites and giving it to those scum, the Romans. He deserves to be treated with contempt. He deserves the wrath of God. He deserves the way I treat him. Before we know where we are, we're treating all kinds of people with contempt. A basket of deplorables. Deplorables. I'm a deplorable. Because I need grace. (laughs) Don't you? Huh? What about the tax collector? He comes in to the temple. Jesus is watching. And he can barely lift his chin off his chest and he stands apart too but it isn't out of a sense of superiority or self-righteousness he knows his life he knows what he's doing but that doesn't mean just because he was a tax collector that he was ripping his people off you see that's what pride does too we see we think everybody's worse for whatever they, you know, we think that they're doing, whatever it is that they believe. We'd never give people the benefit of the doubt. What if he was just doing his job well, but he was still a tax collector? He still had to live under the Romans. The Romans were still expecting you know, their loaf of bread, their peace from the people. Someone had to do it. And maybe he could have done that as a righteous man. But the Pharisee would never know because he was so full of his own conceit. But he comes in. And you can tell the emotion. Jesus can see the emotion in him. Jewish men rarely beat their chest. Something had to be really going on for them to actually beat their chest, have their head down. And then these words come from him. The Pharisee spoke many words. Jesus always already warned us about in the Sermon on the Mount, don't multiply your words when you're praying to God. In the Greek, the The tax collector only has five words. God, make atonement for me, sinner. The scripture here has translated it. We usually, if you're liturgical, you're used to hearing, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Are you familiar with that? Lord have mercy. The word here is different than eleison, Lord have mercy. It's actually more to do with the atonement, the sacrifice. Oh Lord, make a sacrifice for me. You see, Jesus is drawing a contrast between a Pharisee who is trusting and resting that his righteousness is, are enough to make him acceptable to God But the key here is what makes the tax collector go down to his home acceptable to God, justified as if he had never sinned because his hope isn't even in his own humility. It isn't a contrast just of pride and humility. It's a contrast of where your hope is, where your trust is, where your confidence lies. And if it doesn't lie in the righteousness that comes from God alone, you are completely and utterly lost. Because pride essentially is competitive c.s. lewis goes on to say you see he's competing with everybody else and he thinks that he's comparing himself to the way other people are living but we've just sung a song this morning that says how great thou art it's out there the comparison is not between side to side how well you think you're doing in the morality stakes but we have to do with an almighty, sovereign God who is holy and infinite in his holiness. And to come into his presence with soil, garments, with sin, he would destroy us, bam, snuff us out in an instant. And the tax collector knows that. And as shadow and type the Old Testament is, he still comes in in faith. Still comes in moved. Maybe it was the first time the lamb was shed and the blood was shed that day. Maybe it was the second time, maybe afternoon prayers. Who knows when it was? But he came in knowing that he had need of God's righteousness, God's saving act on his behalf. And when he saw the blood, the lamb has been slain. And you can now go home clean. Jesus actually says, he went down, right, to his house justified. Isn't that what he says? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man, not the other. Didn't even call him Pharisee anymore, just just the other guy. He got what he wanted. He got his praise. He got his applause. Well done. But the other man, I saw his heart. He had faith. He saw the lamb. And he was justified. Brought into a new position with God. Not based on either his sins or on what he thought were his good works. But based solely on God's grace for him. Many people try to separate Paul and Jesus. Paul clearly teaches in Romans that we are justified by faith alone in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But where did he get his doctrine from? He got it from Jesus. Surely he got it from Jesus. By the end of Luke's gospel, we will see that Jesus himself will be splayed out on a cross. He is the perfect lamb that was slain for our sins. And here's the point Jesus is making, and let's hammer it home, shall we? Christians don't just repent of their sins, things that they think are bad, bad deeds. Christians, to truly be a Christian, you repent of your good deeds and why you were ever trusting in those to give you a right standing with God. Stop it. Don't do it. It's evil. utmost evil. Repent of your pride. Repent of your conceit as you leave here today, as you realize that you have needed not only Jesus to die for you, take upon himself your sins to die for them, but also believe that Jesus has lived for you, that his record, his right standing with the Father, everything that he has done on your behalf is now credited to your account. You've got nothing to boast of. And now, you can walk this earth with humility, which is the queen of all the graces, isn't it? St. Augustine was famous for having said, the first rule of Christianity is humility. And the second rule of Christianity is humility those who have met a great and mighty god can respond in no other way and that great god has given them a savior in jesus christ cannot respond in any other way throughout the new testament it's repeated god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble jesus says it a little bit differently I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to leave you with Philippians. What kind of people ought we to be as Christians? No matter who wins on Tuesday... Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just as Baird has prayed come Wednesday morning, that will still be true. It will always be true. What's God's will for your life this morning? It's right here in the scripture. Repent of pride and conceit and live your life. Walk humbly with your God and display to others the riches of his grace. Let them see it. Let them know it. Let them believe it in you because they can read your life. Whether that be at home, with your spouse, with your children. My boys know me more than anybody. Probably except my wife. Are you the chief repenter in your house? Do you go first? You get the idea, don't you?